0: A few announcements then, as we begin this morning, Gary is away on vacation, so if you would keep him and his family in your prayers. I understand he's preaching in St. Martin this morning, so we hope that he can hold up under the beautiful conditions there and just be okay in this time of sacrifice. Um, Just a few announcements too then, so I'd refer you to your bulletin for the others, but the Uh, Bible study will be at Sandy's Friday night at 630 in Putnam, Connecticut and this is not in the bulletin it will be next week November 2nd I have signed up for an hour of what's known as the 40 days of life prayer vigil this will be right across the street so very interactive with Planned Parenthood on Pleasant Street in Worcester and What they're basically doing is seven days a week, seven in the morning till seven at night. They have all kinds of brothers and sisters there from various churches praying, maybe to some extent interacting with, receiving insults from passerbys. The plan for November 2nd, which is a Saturday morning, Saturdays are one of, so they have surgical abortions there are performed, I understand Thursday and Friday, or Wednesday and Thursday, and also the first Saturday of the month. So November 2nd is the first Saturday of the month, so there will be uh, young ladies going in and out of that place that are going in to have surgery formed. So it's a very intense time. Uh, So it will be a time of prayer. We will have some singing, if we can get some music there, which I, I think is going to happen. Hoping to have, perhaps, a testimony from a woman at any point in life that either went through with the decision or didn't and how that impacted her and her family and her life. Um so looking forward to a good hour of that. See me about that if you're interested. Yeah, just see me. Uh by email or just grab me, whatever. It'll be in the bulletin next week. It is three weeks away then. Will be the first Saturday of the month and Pray about it ahead of time if you intend to participate in that because it's certainly a spiritually sort of dark thing going on there. Um, It's easy to watch people going in and out of a clinic, but know know what's happening, A, to the life that's being destroyed, and then to the spiritual life and emotional life that's also being destroyed, destroyed, and that would be the mothers. So that's a great time to be able to minister the grace and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. To uh, those that are outside of the faith, or even those that might be in the faith and sort of making their way in, so good things are happening there. I've read testimonies already where uh, some young ladies have turned back uh, and not proceeded. I've also heard there's been you know some insults. I kind of look forward to that. I like it when people walk by and insult, and say terrible things. Um, it makes you makes you humble. So uh, I, I invite you to partake of that. So. This week, let's get into our sermon then. This will come out of Paul's letter to the Colossians. This is the first chapter, verses 13 to 20, in the sermon I've titled Cosmic Christ and the Happy Family. Cosmic Christ and the Happy Family. Part one. This is a two part series. Uh, next week, we'll, I'll mention in the sermon what you can expect next week. Let's read that text then. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 20. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. whether on earth or in heaven, making blood by the peace of his cross. May the Lord make us attentive and wise and informed and built up, whatever else he would have from this, for his glory. The majority of teenagers are incredibly inarticulate about faith, religious beliefs and practices, and its place in their lives the de facto dominant religion among contemporary U.S. teenagers is what they call moralistic therapeutic deism a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over the human life on earth God wants people to be good nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem And good people go to heaven when they die. That's from Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, written in 2005. And another author, about five years old, commenting on a portion of that book, said, If teenagers lack an articulate faith, it is maybe because the faith we show them is too spineless to merit much in the way of conversation. But this sermon is not about teenagers raised in Christian homes who walk away from the faith after a few months of liberal indoctrination under the guise of academic authority. Though a similar principle is in play here in the ancient city of Colossae. Paul did not start this church. A man named Epaphras did. He taught them a pure and a fruitful gospel, according to Paul's opening letter of this to the church in that city. However, a pack of Christ is necessary but not sufficient so-called teachers are on the loose. And to them, Jesus is necessary, but not sufficient in and of himself. You need Jesus, but you need more than Jesus. Authority figures have power to persuade. In particular, to the letter, they were attempting the following with believers. They were speaking about hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Deluding with plausible arguments. They were attempting to take captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and elemental spirits, thrones, and spiritual rulers. Circumcision, passing legalistic judgment on them about what they ate and drank and how well they kept the Sabbath and festivals and moon phases. Asceticism and severity to the body worship of angels, man-made religion. These, Paul says, are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Flesh is used in a number of ways in Scripture. But flesh here is not just physical pleasure. Flesh, as it's mentioned here, is life with no reference to God. It is the life In the domain of darkness, as I will make clear to you. And so you see the parallels to the aforementioned intellectual, spiritual thriving in our secular universities. It isn't just teenagers or young people in universities. Christians are open to the same kinds of secular humanistic influence, which is life without God, life without a God referent, life where man, woman is the center of all things. And of course, it takes more than good Christian teaching. It takes a born grasp of Christ, the cosmic Christ. Clinton Arnold in his book, Powers of Darkness: Principalities and Powers and and they needed to be admonished to draw on the resources that he provides for day to day life, and so perhaps Do you and I? The Spirit will show us. So that is the goal of this first sermon this week, to see Jesus, the Creator and Redeemer of the cosmos. And next week we see the regeneration of the family under the leadership of this cosmic Christ. In language that rouses images of the Passover and Exodus, for those immersed in Old Testament thought, Paul introduces the great hymn, of verses 15 to 20, with verses 13 to 14. The theme is rescue or deliverance, as the various translations may communicate. So we've been delivered from one kingdom into another kingdom. Such was the great deliverance from the angel of death on the evening of the Passover, when the firstborn of Egypt, in the Egyptians for that matter, was slain, if the Paschal sacrifice, the Passover blood, was not applied to the doors and the lintels. Of course, only Jews were informed to do that. So we see in the Exodus narrative how God literally overthrew the many gods of the Egyptians. Each curse carefully designed as a deistic smackdown that rendered those gods impotent to hold back such a mighty deliverance. Christ does likewise, the text tells us. What a descriptive domain of darkness is. In some of Paul's letters, this ancient Greek for domain is rendered authority. And right, as in, does not God have the right over the clay to make what he will of it? In Ephesians, it is power, as in, the prince of the power of the air. A reference to demonic activity. It is a power to shape and define and demand. It's a power to shape and to define and to demand to extract obedience. How terrible when such authority and power and right made by might is darkness itself. Let's ponder the darkness for a bit. I still find myself afraid of the dark from time to time. I am a runner. Well, I used to be until recently when my L5 lumbar facet joint put an end to my running career. But I liked running early in the morning, which for at least seven months of the year means that I ran in dark. And frankly, it can be a little spooky. In the dark, you're not so sure what the noises are in the woods when you're running by. Not only so, but for some reason... When you can't see so well, your ears start to work a lot better. Sound is amplified when the lights are out. So there's probably nothing more than a squirrel or a chipmunk in the woods. Sounds like a charging rhinoceros or starving bear looking for food when you can hear it but can't see so well. And one can become fearfully aware of their surroundings. I prefer to run in the light. I like those summer months running in the fresh and new morning light. As the new day dawns, I hear the same noises, but really don't give so much as a thought to what they are. My mind just informs me right away that it's not a thing to be concerned about. There is no threat. It seems our senses are affected, even distorted, in the dark. Well, spiritual dark is not so different than this. And it's spiritual darkness to which Paul is referring So humans are created by God with some knowledge and readiness for good and evil. With the ability to see some things as right, some things as wrong. In other words, we have a moral sense. Just like we have a sense of sight and a sense of hearing when they're functioning, a sense of smell, a sense of taste, a sense of touch. We use those other five senses to satisfy or cooperate with our moral sense. We listen to things that we read and watch. And what we talk about with one another, it's how we relate to one another. So, to put it another way, we, we use our eyes, our ears, our touch to practice what we think is good and acceptable and what we think is bad or evil, okay? So far, so good. But, just like the runner who has his senses not working properly because of the dark, our moral sense is a mess because of the darkness we call sin. Sin is liking, (coughs) excuse me, is liking what God does not like and doing what God would not do. Simple definition for you. And that covers a whole lot of stuff. And in many cases, we do what we know to be wrong and like it anyway, until it no longer seems to be wrong to us. We do what we know is wrong until it no longer seems to be wrong. The Apostle Paul said it this way in his letters to the Christians in Rome. From the New Living Translation, he says, Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't worship Him as God or even give Him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God is like. As a result, their mind became dark and confused. In spiritual darkness, our moral sense doesn't function. The moral chipmunk becomes the moral bear. What's supposed to seem offensive and disgraceful... Which, by definition, is dis, uh, is dis, is disgraceful to us, appears to our moral sense as good and acceptable. Something we actually desire. So we develop habits of immorality and godlessness, and become slaves to those things. And worst of all, we liked them. We liked what God hates. And that is a human catastrophe. It is devastating because this separates us from our God and one another as we chase our selfish wants. Billions of people with billions of conflicting wants and priorities and bad moral taste. To be truthful, we make ourselves little gods. This is spiritual darkness. The human race had fallen into shadow. And the darkness is such that we don't even know we're in darkness. We don't have enough light in us to see that we cannot see. Spiritually speaking. The heinousness of sin is obscured to us. It's hidden from our souls. Our ugliness is hidden from us. And this darkness also has its own prince, its own lord. It's a lord that makes Voldemort look like a naughty child. The enemy of your soul, the accuser of the people of God, the deceiver, the father of the sons and daughters of unbelief and rebellion, as Jesus called him, the hero of the faithless. The tempter. And he has both the power and the permission to devour unrepentant sinners. He has the power and he has the permission from God to devour unrepentant sinners. Those who reject God and who will not have the Lord Jesus as their Lord. He is crafty and he has schemes and though he cannot be everywhere at once, like God can, he does have many workers who are always perfecting their skill in evil and attacking the church as well. Satan, the Bible says, has a power over death, or had the power over death. He had the power to keep people in dark. People have a fear of death, and the devil knows that, and he's able to use that knowledge against them to provide them with distractions from the thoughts of death and distraction from the thought of God's judgment. That's why we invent evil. The dark is his playground. In old Jewish thought, darkness is one of the names of Satan. In the night, Jesus was betrayed. My fellow image bearers, if you are in Christ today, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's what you've been rescued from. And that's tremendous. What a, what, what a deliverance. How great a salvation, we say. Well, let's turn now to savor that kingdom to which we've been transferred. And to the king, we joyfully pledge allegiance and submission to. See, you and I have a spiritual address in the kingdom of Jesus, whom Paul and the Apostle John remind us is God the Father's beloved Son. We live in a kingdom of love. A kingdom of love. Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We have been made to see this wondrous love. To partake of his wondrous love. And what did we first see in the kingdom? Yeah, you know, I haven't been to Disney in about 30 years. I don't miss it. I don't know when time I went, but I haven't been there in about thirty years. But I imagine if I went, I could say the first thing I saw when I entered the park was. Or I went to the zoo when the first animal I saw was, and I went to Six Flag and the first ride I, I rode was. Well, the first sight that we saw in the kingdom, the first sight by which all our senses were restored. Thy sight by which we now see all other things in the kingdom of God's beloved Son is the thorn-crowned, bloody, scripture-quoted, God-trusting, cosmic Christ. That's the first thing that we saw. He's on the cross. And there, He's exalted as Lord of the universe. The King of the Jews is the King of the Cosmos. Because there he had accomplished redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The scripture doesn't say redemption and forgiveness of sins. It says redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I, I need to digress for a moment because there's a textual, what's called a textual variant here. Okay? In the 14th verse. A textual variant. The King James Version and the New King James Version at verse 14 read, We have redemption through his blood. Most other translations do not. Referring to this, many years ago a brother said to me that most translations of the Bible other than the King James are diabolical. Because they leave out the blood. And some even called the NIV a blood Bible because of this verse. And that's an unfortunate misunderstanding. Because regardless of the translations, salvation, redemption, peace by the blood of Jesus is attested to in many of the New Testament texts. The reason that we don't see it here in most of the translations is because the earliest manuscripts don't have it there. No manuscript until the 9th century has that variant. And it was likely added by a scribe here who saw a parallel verse in Paul's letter to the Ephesians where the ancient text there reads, we have redemption through his blood. So it made its way into a certain family of manuscripts that the King James Version and the New King James Version are based on. Okay? But even Colossians, even in this same chapter, even in, this, in every Bible that might be slandered otherwise, the scripture reads, making peace by the blood of his cross. So I hope that was helpful in some way to those who wonder about such things. Uh, if you've never sort of lived under the scourge of uh, King James Onlyism, you may not appreciate that as much. Well, verse 20, though, does give a little more dimension to this grace of redemption and forgiveness. A cosmic dimension. See, God in Christ has reconciled the entire cosmos. All things, whether on earth or in heaven. See, the entire creation is longing for this. All creation groans, Paul says to the church at Rome. But it has, it has begun. See, peace has been made by the blood of Jesus' cross. We don't see it as such, perhaps a lot, even in our own lives. We tend to not see it, you know, things still look kind of crazy out there. Things still look kind of nutty down here. All things in heaven and on earth are on a trajectory that will finally be as it should be. It takes time, and God uses a process. And this is important to remember because part of this is the reason why these teachers have snuck into Colossae and teaching these other things. Okay? Jesus isn't sufficient. But the process of this cosmic reconciliation could not begin until peace was made by the blood of the cross of Christ. On earth we have a history of the ravages of war. And only when peace has been made and a treaty announced can the rebuilding of the decimated areas begin. Tanks and weaponry... Really are not pulled out of the war zone until peace and surrender have been made. And it takes a long time for some war-ravaged areas to actually look like there is peace. We think of the South after the Civil War. Think of what Hiroshima and Nagasaki must have looked like. People might have been hard-pressed to believe that we've been at peace for ten years if they were to look at that environment. And here's an example that I thought of as well. When I think of how is it that reconciliation has happened? This great peace. All the, everything is being reconciled to God and Christ. What are some of the things we've seen over the years that make us scratch our head and wonder how long, Lord? Slavery remained after the resurrection of Jesus. I kind of bring this up because I think it's a great example, but also because there is a certain movement in the body out there among Christianity that is talking about this subject in ways that I think are very inappropriate. And I won't get into the why of it, because this isn't the place for that kind of social commentary, other than to see there's a division happening in the body of Christ because of it. So I I think about this thing and I say, what went on with that? And I see here, this is this is addressed in this. This is addressed in what's going on in our life, even though Jesus has made the reconciliation. See, Paul did not at once announce slavery to be unchristian. Do you ever wonder about that? Paul never said that slavery was to be unchristian. And he did not promote slave rebellion. Incidentally, that didn't go so well for Spartacus. See, Paul was in his day, though. Radical in his letter to Philemon to even suggest that perhaps Philemon would consider freeing his slave Onesimus. Believers had slaves in many cases. However, through the transforming power of the gospel, of, of Christ conquering sin through death and resurrection, institutions such as slavery became nonsensical to Christian thought and love as the image of Christ was formed in them. Whereas good... God could have, I suppose, simply, immediately sort of reprogrammed the minds of believers. Right? He could have just sort of immediately reprogrammed the minds of the redeemed. Everything right. To never do everything wrong again. It strikes me that perhaps God wants us to mature in such a way that we increasingly prefer the wonder and joy of desiring Him and His ways. There's something about the process of that happening. It's, it's like the process of falling in love a little bit. You know, that doesn't happen all at once. Hopefully you're married 30 years and you're still falling in love. Amen? Oh, husbands, i got a word for you next week. Um, it, takes, it takes time for the eyes to adjust to light. <laughs> Those who held to slavery in America for as long as they did and who tried to defend it from Scripture, were entirely in sin. And many paid dearly for it. And as a matter of biblical record, man-stealing was always prohibited. Exodus 21.16 Whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. American slavery was dreadfully ill-informed and opposed to the earliest revelation of God. Christianity brought about its demise. But it took time. It didn't happen immediately. And at the cosmos is happening that way. Things are are happening. The Gospel, the good news that Christ is Lord, is getting the cosmos back to where God and all of the redeemed shall look upon and say, it is good. Redemption is happening. The sons and daughters of God are being revealed. Maybe abortion will be the next stronghold to fall due to the influence of of Christian thought and gospel power and transformation. Why not? But it doesn't happen all at once. See, and that could be a source of discouragement to us, but mustn't be because that is not decreed that it would come about. This is the sort of we walk by faith and not by sight part sometimes. So it's widely maintained that verses 15 through 20 are a very early hymn. That many in the churches would be aware of an early hymn that would across the churches, and Paul is quoting it to remind them that this is the Christ of the hymn, the cosmic Christ who is the object of verses 13 to 14, the one who secured our redemption. And it takes the Christ of this hymn to obliterate the menace of the Christ as necessary but not sufficient teachers. It takes this. This is a transformative passage. On the other hand, it may be that Paul composed it here for this letter even as an original, but in any case it serves the same purpose. This is the original and better version of Behold Our God. Not that there's anything wrong with the one we sing. It is truth that spiritually rallies the church to overcome evil with good. We need this. Meditating on this Christ will change us. It has sanctifying power. You've got to believe that meditating on Christ and the Word of God will change you. It's the only thing that God doesn't change passively. He just doesn't. If you want to be passively saved, I mean, passively sort of growing, we got to talk. Jesus Christ, the text says, is the image of the invisible God. Now, this means more than Jesus is God in human form. Okay? It's not just a physical statement. Jesus is what God had in mind when he made man in his image, as the Genesis text reads. The Bible project video that we saw at the beginning was put there to remind us of what is meant by the image of God. We are in the image of God. Humans represent God on earth and were to rule alongside him as the agents of his creation order. Humans were to have dominion. But we don't. We have Triple E, encephalitis virus, by a mosquito. A mosquito! As the producers of the video stated, the image of God in the Bible that we are given shows that ruling over earth means to cultivate it, harnessing its raw potential, and moving creation forward. We blew it. Adam failed it. Christ nailed it. Jesus, the text says, is also the firstborn of all creation. This term, firstborn, gets beat up in a hundred ways. What does that mean? Yes, it means that he's greater than everyone and everything else. Okay? It does entail that he is preeminent. But there's more. The firstborn has rich meaning in Old Testament thought. On the eve of the Passover, when the angel of death smote, the firstborn bore the wrath of God. Really, that would be wrath against the whole family, of course, too, right? The entire family suffered. Judgment was on the entire family, carried out on the firstborn. In that sense, the firstborn represented the family. In the Passover, the Lamb was substituted for the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He is the one who would bear God's wrath for the benefit of the entire cosmos, but there is no Lamb to be His substitute. He is the Lamb. He created it all. And He redeemed it all. He is the creator, redeemer, Yahweh, of Isaiah. Everything in earth, that says, was created through Him and for Him, including, and this is important, given the heresy growing in Colossae, thrones, dominions, or rulers or authorities. These were all created by Christ and for Christ. Okay? They were all created through Him and for Him. So, time and text prevent us from exhaustively exploring spiritual beings in the elemental spirits that this letter mentioned. But before creating humans, God created other beings, spiritual beings. And it was also their function to image him to some degree. And they had a role in carrying about his creation mandate as well. They were in the heavenly realm, whereas humans were on the earthly realm. The two, by the way, intersected at Eden. But that's another sermon. The term thrones has a potentially fascinating history in the Eden account. The prophet Ezekiel in his day was told by Yahweh to address the king of Tyre. Somewhat of a double entendre because that prophetic pronouncement was also a rebuke of the spiritual being behind the prideful king of Tyre. Also thought to be the serpent of Eden. Ezekiel said, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God, which is a reference to Eden. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. In his book, Unseen Realm, Michael Heiser writes, a cherub was a divine throne guardian in the ancient Near East worldview. Ancient Near East art and engravings have many examples of such throne guardians as animals, including serpents. In its rebellion, the serpent, the previously anointed cherub, persuaded humankind likewise to rebel. This cherub was what was probably known as a throne guardian. He had a purpose, a protective, guarding purpose in the heavenlies. Adam and Eve failed to take dominion. The Lord Jesus Christ, as the image of the invisible God as the firstborn, has taken dominion. He has redeemed the scripture says Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head. Christians are no longer under the dominion of darkness, nor of Satan. And they're not to fear or submit in any way to these elemental spirits. In Colossi, they were. You and I don't necessarily do this so much, although perhaps there are some that consult mediums and spiritists. That would be one way. Another way, though, would be just sort of worldviews, which I hope you'll understand in a moment. Furthermore, as the letter states, God in Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, the spiritual beings against God and His people. So, they have no unwelcome power over the Christian. They have no unwelcome power. The practices Paul is teaching against, those rituals and observances he repeatedly mentions, they have, as these spiritual beings, at work in the activities associated with man-made religion. So the things that humans do with man-made religion and false religion and idolatry, there are spiritual powers at work behind the scenes in that. Somehow, spiritual beings have access to human emotions and intellect and thought. Paul warns the Ephesians to deal with their anger. Why? Why? So that the devil doesn't get an opportunity. The devil has ministers that disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Husbands and wives who deprive one another of sexual intimacy send a personal invitation to Satan which says, you are cordially invited into our home to ruin our marriage. Peter asked Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Though we are not under the dominion of sin and darkness, we do until that great day have to deal with their influence to some extent, which we're fully equipped to do, which is why it's brought on the text here that Christ has defeated them and disarmed them, putting them to open shame. My daughter likes to watch a cartoon called Miraculous, Tales of Ladybug and Cat Noir. You want to sharpen your theology? Watch children's programming. So, the villain is one Hawk Moth. And he has a tower full of these little black and purple moths. And Ladybug and Cat Noir are these teenage superheroes in Paris. And their superpowers come from these items that they wear called Miraculous. Okay? Ladybug wears an earring and, and Cat Noir wears a ring. And so, she turns into Ladybug, he turns into Cat Noir. Well, Hawk Moth wants these Miraculous so he can undo the past and bring back his wife. To accomplish this he infects these moths with evil. And he sends them out to create supervillains out of people with emotions like anger and jealousy and disappointment. And he calls these little moths Akuma. Which, by the way, is Japanese for devil or demon. And so, Hawk Moth, from where he is in his tower, he perceives these emotions, these negative emotions, taking place somewhere. And here are a few of his quotes from when he does. Negative emotions. This is Perfect. Just what I need. Anger. Sadness. Burn a hole into his heart, my horrible Akuma. Ah, Valentine's Day. The day of love and the day of fools. So many delusions. So many disappointments. My evil Akumas, you're going to have such a field day. I feel a disharmonious soul. An angry discord. I deal pray for my evil Akumas. Now go and evilize him. Because evilizing him. So you get the idea. And then then Ladybug, at the end, she she de-evilizes them through the power of her miraculous. I think that's kind of what we're dealing with when, as Christians, as we see the warnings from Paul about anger and about lust and about a number of other things, that we become sort of susceptible and amenable to their influence. You leave out garbage and the rats are going to feed. Okay? The rats can't feed where there are no garbage where well, there is no garbage. A biblically, biblically balanced understanding of rulers and authorities and dominions and spirits and princes of the power of the air is needful. Okay, most important though, Jesus disarmed them. So when they show up to fight, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Again, this doesn't just mean he's the first one to rise from the dead, because that wouldn't be true, because others have already risen from the dead. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Again, firstborn is pregnant with Old Testament meaning. The firstborn was the first in line to redeem other family. Okay? And also, Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven, And I shall make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So Jesus is king over death, and he conquered it. By doing so, he tore the teeth out of the enemy. He has set these spirits to open shame. Well, image bearers, we're joined with him in his death and his resurrection. He's preeminent. We're partakers. We're conduits of his preeminence and his reconciling power. And Paul knows, and we need to know, that this hymn is sufficient to inoculate his precious hearers against heresy. He doesn't need to disprove one by one all of the idiotic spiritual drivel from the mouths of the heretics. There have recently been some pretty big names of people that have left the Christian faith, so-called followers of Jesus. At least among them Joshua Harris, right? Who wrote that book. And you've heard this already, I know. Why I swore off dating or whatever. But you'll notice in any of the reasons that they give, they're recognizing, so they aren't giving real good theological reasons. That They talk about feelings and they talk about emotions and things like that. But they never talk about doctrine. But whatever it is that they're looking for, they're not getting it. Okay, that's what it comes to. Whatever they're looking for, they're not getting it. And it's because they don't have this cosmic Christ. I don't know what Jesus they had, but they didn't have this one. It's not possible. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, the text says. And this informs us that in Christ, all of the purposes of God are fully realized. All the wisdom and knowledge. You don't need more wisdom and knowledge. This is a real nascent. This isn't really an early form of Gnosticism, but Gnosticism began a century or so later. And Gnosticism was materialism is bad, spiritual things are good. There's secret wisdom, there's secret knowledge, Gnosticism. There's secret knowledge for you. There's things you don't know yet. There's things you need to understand. Yeah, I know that you're a Christian, but you really need to read this. I know that Christ, yeah, I know what you believe about Jesus, but you need to read this. And this is, I mean, the purest, easiest example is, is, again, the kid in school, in college, right? Where these degraded, mentally deranged professors are getting a hold of the kids and informing and instructing their mind and deconstructing first, deconstructing through intimidation and authoritarianism, a worldview that is contrary, I mean, a worldview they should be embracing, but the one they're giving is contrary to sound reasoning. And they're using, they're deluding with persuasive arguments. Well, this is happening in the adult world is too, as well. It's just no one writes books about adults that you know wander away from the faith and how it happened. You come under the influence of work. You come under the influence of influence of family, people that you know. This is why I think the psalmist cries out, you know, how long, O oh Lord, will the, will, the, will the wicked prosper? And he comes around to see understand why. See, there are things out there. As there was in Colossae, Christians need to see Christ this way. All of the covenantal blessings, curses, hopes, and promises are completely at, at home in Christ. This is what it means that in Him all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt. In Him the fullness was pleased to dwell. It isn't, it isn't just sort of simply the bare statement that Christ is God. Look, this is a verse about His deity. Yeah, it is. But you've got to understand what that means. It's not just a statement of sort of physical being or human flesh, or Jesus is 100 percent man and 100 percent God, all those other things we say and pretend we understand what they mean and feel good about it. But it does mean that everything was accomplished in Christ that God wanted accomplished. Christ, He is the new human. He's 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 the thing God had in mind when He created humans, and all His purposes are fulfilled in Christ. There's nothing lacking anywhere. And we see this in the book of Revelation as well. John is weeping because there's no one worthy to open the scroll. Well, why is that? What's that all about? Well, the scroll represents the decrees and purposes of God. But there's no one there that can bring them to pass. No wonder John is weeping. There's no one there to fulfill everything from the Old Testament. Or or, or what's coming down the road. But one of the elders steps up and says, Don't worry. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll. John looks, but rather than seeing a lion, he sees a lamb standing as if it had been slain. He took the scroll and he opened it. He unraveled, he unveiled, he fulfilled all its purposes. Everything about it. That's why all the living creatures and elders and millions just fell down and began worship and singing that great one of those great songs we see in Revelation four and five, because here he is. This is it, this is everything. This is, this is it. they worship the Lamb. And the hymn here says, "All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He reconciled all things in heaven and earth to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. The lion is the lamb. The firstborn is the creator and the redeemer and king." So, at last, my fellow image bears, are we singing this hymn? Is this the song of our souls? See, there are spiritually inspired dark world views out there. Are we being influenced? And you've got to figure out for yourself maybe what that is. What's influencing you? What gets a hold of your emotions? What gets a hold of your pocketbook? What gets a hold of your emotions? Let's just stay there. What gets you riled up? Be careful. See in that thing that's got you all nuts what might be missing of the cosmic Christ and either the power to overcome it or to recognize what it is. What is out there telling you and I that Christ is necessary but not sufficient? If the churches of the Lord Jesus unite in the Christ of this hymn, what could possibly divide us? Who is telling you and me that Christ is not worthy? that He is not the cosmic Christ King. Who is it or what is it out there that dares to defy or challenge the Lord of glory? At the root of every sin and proneness to wander in us, every doubt, every open door to spiritual influences to Christ is the soul's neglect to sing this hymn with heaven's harmony. You have seen perhaps how really high-pitched singing can shatter glass This hymn, this text, is intended to reduce to splinters anything that exalts itself against true knowledge of God and His cosmic Christ. It has and it will until our King returns. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen? Lord, what a text and what a promise and what a song for our souls to sing and what what an opportunity for us to remember to take time to meditate upon things like this and to remind each other of these things as well. As we look at this text and we wonder, Lord, and as I ponder, you know, how does a human being get up and talk about Christ? How does anyone even begin to describe, how can anyone begin to describe the glorious excellence of the Redeemer and Creator of the cosmos? So we have your inspired word to help us understand you and see you. Thank you for painting for us such a glorious vision of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. We would be completely free by this to follow you, to submit to you in every way, and to proclaim your excellency who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Amen.